0: Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version, with no frills, and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player Two episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair, and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part no spaces. Now, on to the show. This is Aaron
1: from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us, there's an episode guide, and of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part.
0: Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And, you know, this week we're covering chapter 0002, which is kind of an odd way to reference chapters, but, you know, we're just going to stick with it, right? And the brief overview here is that we start off the day with Parsifal's morning exercises, a number of laps in his Olympic-sized pool with his AR swim goggles that allows him to see the variety of, of animals and, you know, basically like swimming with, with the animals in the ocean. He gets out, he gets dressed, he has breakfast, he talks to his therapist, and then he goes into his O&I. I mean, that's just like a typical day in the life, right?
1: That sounds exactly like my life.
0: That's exactly how I wake up my day. But I, this, I think this is like a really important chapter, because all we're discussing in this chapter is his going from the pool to eating breakfast to getting in his haptic rig or getting in his, his O&I setup. There's not a lot there. I mean, it's just traveling a number of feet, really.
1: True, but like, I thought his choice of breakfast was interesting. What is omelette and hash browns? Omelette and hash browns. I mean, that's a pretty basic pedestrian breakfast. He can have anything, he could have steak and eggs, he could have steak, lobster, and eggs. With hollandaise sauce.
0: <laughs> I didn't. And he has an omelet with hash browns. I am so thankful that this chapter did not go into multiple paragraphs detailing the, the complexity and fanciness of his food. It's light years probably ahead of what he was eating in the stacks for breakfast. If he ate anything in the stacks for breakfast, you know, where he would go. Who was the cat lady that he would go and visit and have breakfast with?
1: It's Mrs. Gilmore. Gilmore.
0: There we go. I think he went to her place to have breakfast occasionally. I think There's that was even mentioned in there.
1: Oh, right, right. So And powdered eggs, yeah.
0: This is a step up. Yeah, this is a huge step up. It's an omelet, not just scrambled eggs. It's an omelet, right?
1: Oh, oh. But it's
0: fancy, and yet at the same time, well, fancy-ish, fancier. But at the same time, it's very, like you said, it's very pedestrian. It's almost as if it's like high-echelon bland or high-echelon norm. I could imagine
1: his cooks being like, Really? fucking omelet
0: i don't think he has cooks i don't think he would have cooks i think there's probably other robots cooking his food Uh, that's what you want in the
1: ahead of the robot apocalypse is well robots cooking your food
0: i i think that this chapter is like super important for setting the stage of his mental well-being at the moment and setting the stage for where he needs to go to like in every good book with every good strong character you have good character development you should have good character development we're setting a norm but we're also putting him into a place where we understand where is his head at now and this is light years from his head in the stacks from a from a technology perspective and yet it's the same he is still alone he is still surrounded by people who don't like him we've gone from his aunt and her boyfriend to basically the world. But he's still in a place where he has very limited social interaction. He's still alone. He's still an island, I guess is the gist here. And we see that in his mental state when he's, he's chatting with his therapist. We see that in his reflection on his relationship with the High Five. We see that in how he reflects on how he's protected you know the security that he needs to feel in order to get onto the oasis, and we also kind of see that in the paranoia and the sort of social separation that comes with popularity and power. So that's a huge broad spectrum let's Let's just start from the beginning here because we've already talked about the glasses, the goggles, the ability to interact with the environment in a digital way, your sort of your AR oceanic whatnot this, this is we talked about that in the last chapter. For me, what I found interesting here was we start off with him being served by Belvedere, which is his tier one AI robotic servant. Awesome. Great name. When we talk about his mental state, the fact that he says, you know, this robot doesn't say anything. It just does work. That that no matter how he tweaked it, that the way that it spoke to him, it just gave him the the heebie-jeebies. That he'd just seen too many sort of, you know, Robotics overthrowing humanity movies to feel super comfortable about a robot taking on that characteristic of human voice. Which is kinda interesting because he has no problem talking to his, you know, internal systems AI.
1: It's just that when they take on a humanoid form, they start to get a little bit weird. Well, which I get th- I get that. It's it could harm you if it was one of the tier three AI bots. It could it could hurt you.
0: Well, yeah. Well and it, you've also got that that conflict with what's called the Uncanny Valley. Have you Ooh, heard of this? That? I've
1: heard of the Uncanny X-Men.
0: <laughs> it's dramatically different, I think. Uh, the uncanny Valley is this chart, if you will. It's a charting of technology. And that humans are okay with robots, so as long as they don't represent humans too closely, unless they represent humans exactly. And that we're cool with Johnny Five... Johnny Five has eyes, but they look nothing like human eyes. He kind of has a mouth, but it's not a mouth. It's a digital, you know, red meter going across, right? He has a body and his arms. It looks nothing like human. So it's lovable. It's cute. We are cool with that. We are cool with, you know, non-human robots taking on human characteristics so long as they don't look too human. Uncanny Valley is when you reach that place where it's really close. Kind of like... 1990 CGI, where you're like, I-, I get that that's close, but the shadowing, the glimmering, the ray tracing is just not precise enough. Uh, I'm thinking along the lines of The Scorpion King.
1: You gotta give me a reference, I know.
0: Oh, oh, oh. This this is a part of the... I'm the worst, I know. The, the Mummy series, right? The Scorpion King had the rock in it, and it had the rock with like the body of a scorpion, but the torso of the rock. But it looked really glassy, and the facial representations just looked really artificial. And it it, it was 95% there, but that 5% is is where the uncanny comes in, and that's when people get uber-critical about bad CGI. In fact, most bad CGI comes from trying to represent people with computer animation, and it just misses okay. the mark, even by a little bit. So it, the point here being is that it, we've got Belvedere as a, as a servant. So let me ask you the question then, what would you name your servant? Because we understand the reference here. This is you know a reference to Mr. Belvedere, which aired between 1985 and 1990. It was a sitcom about a sort of Britishy type butler that kind of helps a chaotic family what would you call your servant?
1: I would probably have a few, because why not? I would certainly take a cue from Parzival and name one Mr. Belvedere, but I would probably go a little bit further. For some reason, a lot of my favorite TV shows from the 80s had a housekeeper or a butler in it. I don't know why. you got to have Mrs. Garrett from Different Strokes. <laughs>
0: You'd go through like a, a history of butlers. Would would you have an Alfred? Oh, you got to have an Alfred. Okay.
1: Tony from Who's the Boss?
0: I remember Who's the Boss, right? Right. Uh, Alyssa Milano, Breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm
1: trying to think, who else? That's it. Yeah, I guess. I guess. That, I mean, <laughs> those are those are like some of my favorites, at least from the '80s. That I really like, kind of remember those characters a lot. I think. For just a little bit of fun, you throw in Daphne from Frasier.
0: Sure. Because you love, the, you gotta love the voice. Yeah. Yeah, true that. I and, think for me, go ahead. Yeah.
1: no, And I think, that, I think that's a good start. There's probably more, but I think those are the ones that pop into my head first.
0: That's a lot of robots.
1: I'm going to have a really big house. <laughs> this is like asking ourselves, what are you going to do when you win the lottery?
0: Are your robots going to be in the shapes of pots and teacups? And <laughs> you're going to be a Beauty and the Beast situation here? Yeah, probably
1: not. The other thing that I would consider doing is modeling the robots after the the robots from the movie Sleeper.
0: Oh, oh, I thought you'd be like model them after the robot from the from the people from the show. Oh, you could do that too. Gave. Like I'm
1: saying, like in another scheme where they're not necessarily super humanoid looking. Have you seen that movie, the Woody Allen movie, Sleeper?
0: I've not. Mm
1: -mm. Uh, Well, there's these robot butler type. There's actually a lot of automated robot-y type things in that movie.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that if I was to name a robot, a service robot of some sort, I would call it Skippy.
1: Skippy? I mean, like from a
0: family tie Skippy? (laughs) no lord no 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 so it's a little bit more of a recent reference there is a book series called expeditionary force and it's a fantastic series and in it the main character joe stumbles upon basically this highly powerful alien ai that is nestled within what looks to be the representation of a beer can without a label on it and uh, skippy is an asshole the book is great the series is awesome Obviously, we're not getting paid to promote it, so this is honestly from the gut here. If you're interested in sci-fi books, which you obviously would be if you're listening to this, then Expeditionary Force, I think, is a really fun, fun series. And Skippy in it is like a highlight to it. That said, Cyberpunk 2077 has a gun called Skippy, and it is a direct reference to that book. And the gun itself has AI that's like kind of a sarcastic asshole AI that is entertainment through the game. So you can look that up on YouTube, go pick up the gun, and you'll at least be halfway there to understanding the kind of AI that I'm talking about. All right, so the idea that that he is untrusting, like this is the first glimmer, if you will, into this sort of mentality of of A, wanting to be separated from humans, not really trusting AI, um, which is odd, I thought, but it kind of goes into that sort of level of paranoia. And there's a good, you know, three or four paragraphs that's really digging into the different levels of AI. Tier one, which is dumb. It's it's very low level. It's for service droids. Tier two, which is for military and science. It's a little bit higher level. There's some some degree of learning there. And then a tier three, which is considered fully conscious and that there was an active race amongst a number of countries to be the first to quote-unquote unleash that level of AI, which is fully sentient. And there's a lot of reason to be concerned about that. Uh, there have been a number of posts from Elon Musk about his concern for that moment when we unleash a tier three artificial intelligence that is fully sentient and intelligent, able to think for itself, of itself, and be aware of itself. So I found that there, the fact that we there were a number of paragraphs there covering that was, I wonder if that's telling or if that's just a moment of just delving into his knowledge of AI.
1: I did some digging on the AI discussion because I was kind of curious if this, the tier one, two, three thing was, if that came from Ernest Klein's head. But, you know, I found a very similar description of the different types of AI that are kind of categorized into three different subsets. Mm -hmm. And there's artificial narrow intelligence, which is basically your tier one, artificial general intelligence, Tier 2, and artificial superintelligence, Tier 3, which is described as more capable than a human. So I don't know how far back these three levels of AI have existed. I don't think they're called Tier 1 or Tier 2. They're just given these names that are based on their range of intelligence.
0: No, today I've not heard anything in regards to, quote-unquote, tiers. I think he's just interpreting what we've got now into something in the future.
1: That's basically what I came to determine was that he took the pre-existing kind of like three levels thing and just kind of called it something else for the sake of the book or something. Right. But they do line up pretty well. The tier one relates to this narrow range of abilities, tier artificial narrow intelligence, and then they start to get a little bit more on par with human capabilities in the general intelligence category, and then they're super intelligent, which would be the military
0: stuff. And when we talk about the functionality of robots being able to walk around and help us, like five or six years ago, if you'd seen the DARPA competitions between robots being able to drive a car, get out of a car, go up to a building, open a door, it's comical. It's YouTube-worthy. Nowadays, though, it's pretty phenomenal what kind of flexibility, what kind of motion and speed that can be attained. There is a, a video that recently was produced, what was the Boston Dynamics Robots, dancing to Do You Love Me.
1: Oh, I've not seen
0: that. Oh, hold on a second. Let me send it to you and give it a, give it a quick look. Because I
1: couldn't dance. You didn't even want me around. And now I'm back to let you know I can really shake them down.
0: Now, something to keep in mind here is unlike the Gundam in Japan that has this huge support system, it's not really walking, it's just doing leg motions, and it's connected to a huge structure, this is not connected to any structures. What do you think?
1: They can dance a hell of a lot better than I
0: can. (laughs) I mean it's remarkable, just in a handful of years we 've gone to just huge robotic fails to that kind of nimbleness it was really smooth Un- unusually smooth like eerie yeah, and you could go and push them. you could hit them with like a broomstick you could you can knock them over, they come back up, you can push them, and they can regain balance on the fly' it's phenomenal it's, you watch a number of other videos from Boston Dynamics, but when we talk about like the capabilities of robots in the book versus what we have today. Like we are on the edge of that kind of service bot, if you will. And that is both fascinating and kind of scary too, because like you said, it could dance better than you could dance better than I can. At the very least, it's doing something better than most humans could do. Even if we're just talking about dancing, that should scare you a little. A little bit. (laughs) So I want, to, I want to go back to him putting his clothes on. I know we're, we're going back before breakfast. We talked about breakfast. I want to talk about the putting on the clothes thing.
1: Sure, yeah. That's actually a good point.
0: Because there was an interesting reference there, which is that he has a number of suits he doesn't wear. And we've already discussed the fact of him not being comfortable in business attire. That's not a place that he's comfortable being. But that there is a set of clothes that he is used to wearing, and it's the same clothes. That, you know, you go in and you see like a a lineup, I would imagine, of hangers with the exact same shirts and the exact same pants. That mentality, though, is not unusual. And they do mention in the book that Albert Einstein, you know, when we trace that back, that kind of mentality back, that Albert Einstein did that. But there are people today. There are people within the real that do that today. Uh, Steve Jobs used to do that.
1: Start on neck and jeans,
0: right? And oftentimes, I think we're going to find Mark Zuckerberg when he's you know not in front of Congress answering questions. Sure. Uh, he will be wearing just you know a regular shirt and pants. Like that's become his brand. Whenever you see him, and I don't know that it's exactly the same color pants or shirt all the time, but it, it is this sort of branded short sleeve shirt. It's not a polo per se, but but it's just you know just a regular shirt and pants like you might wear to the beach. And that seems to be kind of his his standard brand. And the mentality behind that is interesting. You can look up online and there are a number of really good reasons why you would want to do that. And in fact, I I suggest everybody take on this idea because if you're in a position where your job is to make a lot of decisions, you can get decision fatigue. Um, You have a, a limited capability to use your mind to make decisions before you start to wear out. And the idea here is that the philosophy of having the same clothes is that it reduces the number of decisions that you have to make, which means it reduces decision fatigue. It reduces the amount of time that you might waste in trying to make the decision of what to wear today, which for some people can be kind of exhaustive in and of itself. It becomes a point of being iconic, which means people see you and they, they represent how you dress as sort of the symbol for who you are it turns into something that's sort of a level of self-branding. And on top of that, it's less expensive because, you know, how many clothes do you own that you don't wear?
1: Right now, given lockdowns, a lot.
0: Yeah, well, this is true. Right. Even if you weren't on lockdown, though, like there might be shirts that you might think, oh, that's really cool. And then you just never wear it. Or somebody gets you a shirt or pair of pants that, you know, you're like, yeah, I'll probably wear this. But it's like, fifth or sixth on your tier of favorite pants to wear. You don't have that anymore. You're going to wear all of them. You're just you just going to go through them and wash them and keep going through them.
1: What's crazy though is the clothes that I wear for work are different than the clothes that I wear for regular life. Sure. I have a series of clothes that last me a fair amount of time for work stuff. But then like I have this wide array of t-shirt and jeans type clothes that I don't go through them so often, but they still end up going through the laundry. So I wear less of my everyday clothes as opposed right. to my work clothes. So there's a lot of shirts, like you said, like I uh, shirts or whatever that I don't wear because like I, like I, if I had 20 t-shirts, I might cycle through four or five of them as opposed to 20 of them.
0: Right. Right. I, I'm guilty of doing that as well.
1: And they're oftentimes Ready Player One shirts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you if you can take anything away from this chapter like life advice, this would be it. This is not a bad thing to do and it didn't really he just he just reflects on this for a few lines. But for reference sake uh, and for, you know, kind of a nice little philosophy of life, this is really a pretty good idea.
1: Who knew you were going to get that kind of advice from this
0: podcast? None. Nobody. <laughs> not at all. We just we have just elevated the level of quality in in this episode. So let's jump back to him sitting and eating eggs, his omelet, that is slowly growing cold. And he's reflecting on, at length, his paranoia of robots gaining AI and then basically turning on humans while saying, Roger, Roger. <laughs> Just shooting, you know, mowing down fields of people while going, Roger, Roger. Roger, Roger. I actually was like,
1: God, that Roger Roger thing, that sounds so familiar. I had to look this up to be like, oh, that's where I
0: think I heard it. So Star Wars, it's a, it's a blatant Star Wars reference. And he doesn't come out and say Roger Roger just like in Star Wars. Roger Roger. It's, it's a light reference. And I kind of like when he does the light reference because it's like a wink and a nod without being super explicit.
1: Well, I, I think they, uh, you also hear Roger Roger in the movie Airplane. Flight 209, er, you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Huh? LA departure frequency 123.9er.
0: Roger. Huh?
1: Request vector. Over. What? Flight 209er clear for vector 324.
0: We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? Roger, over. What? Huh? Who?
1: But, but I think the, the, the battle droids in Star Wars is, is the more apt reference.
0: Roger, roger. Yes, absolutely. And there's a YouTube channel called Star Wars Kids that has a video wherein they show you 96 instances of variety of characters, mostly droids, saying roger, roger. And it's become a comic trope Yeah. within Star Wars. They'll use Roger, Roger, not just Roger, Roger, Roger. They'll use it as a means of expressing disappointment or excitement. Kind of, you know, they add, they add inflection into it. So it's, <laughs> I didn't realize how, how freaking extensive it was.
1: I think I saw one of those compilations of Roger, Roger, spanning the Star Wars games and series. And I could only go so far. I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> done. Enough Roger. Roger.
0: So I want to move past the robot AI stuff, but I want to ask you a question first. He spent like a page talking about this, and I don't know if what he's doing here is painting a, on the canvas a picture of paranoia, distrust, and disconnectedness, or if this is a situation where there will be a future reflection on this. Because it seems that any time when the world is racing to do something, some brilliant genius has already done it and just not told everyone. So the question to you, without answering the question, is is whether or not this is something that will be relevant later. Ooh,
1: that's a good question.
0: I guess you'll have to. Because I don't, and see. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> 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 you gonna point to your head? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay.
1: All right. Fair enough. Uh, to the point of your question, we are learning a lot about these different types of robots and AI things that are kind of in this world that we didn't know about in the first book. Right. So there's been some development in that area here that did spark a little bit of thought when I was first reading this. Because we're learning about these different autonomous robots. We've got the Belvedere, we've got these telebots, and we've got this thing up in his spaceship doing all this stuff. This feels like there was a huge leap in... The technology that was being told to us between the first book and the second
0: book. It's very strange because in the last book, there was this feeling that the world was advanced in some ways, but crippled in others. Yeah. Crippled in, in, in physical, actual societal development. Like, what would be the point of robots except for the uber rich, which, you know, of course, that's who we're talking about now. You know, where would be the demand? Where would be the need to develop that to such lengths.
1: It seems like with all the stuff being developed, the size of the market for those things has to be pretty small.
0: Right. Right. Which means maybe there's been some invention in the past five years that the book has so far spanned, or three years, I suppose, that the book has spanned. And then that takes us into that, that next form of robot, which is that humanoid telepresence robot, where you have he, he has his robots working on the Vonnegut. And he has engineer, a fleet of engineers, Earth-side, remotely controlling robots and working on his spaceship in orbit. And that makes sense. Like, if you wanted to make a big ship, you wouldn't make it on Earth and then launch it up. That would be way too expensive, way too resource-cost prohibitive. You know, you might make it in pieces and launch it up, but it, even that's fairly expensive. It would make a lot more sense to either manufacture it in space, print it in space, and deliver up just the raw materials yeah. and then have your AI robots working on it.
1: And for a while, they were doing this in secret.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it would have had to have been. They had to like keep it away from everybody.
1: So that had to have been a real challenge to send all that material up there. It's not a small ship.
0: No, no. And in fact, you probably would be able to see it from the ground. I, I remember living in Washington State. I could look up and I could see the reflection of light from satellites.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I remember that is your world covered in smog. No, remember that's that true. they're really polluted. So he probably that's probably a good barrier between seeing this large spaceship.
0: I'd I'd say that probably not the entire world is covered in smog. That there are probably some areas that are far less populated due to the wars and whatnot that you'd have a really good night's view. So I'd say possibly. And 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 in fact we do know that there's enough clarity because he he specified that he went to he basically you know put on his glasses and activated his his telepresence robot and that he used the robot to look down at earth and to view him on his building out yeah. on the porch. So there there was at least enough clarity to do that. A little
1: bit, yeah. That's fair. So okay.
0: Um, I'll allow it. loud. But here's the thing, though. For that technology, that's technology we have today. Like, Like if you didn't want to go to work, like up until COVID, up until we've all been working from home, businesses have been moving very slowly, but have been moving towards a telepresence or remote work format. And a lot of successful businesses have been able to leverage this Uh, And there have been some businesses that didn't leverage it very well. Yahoo, for example, laid off a number of people that said, show up to the office or you're no longer employed. But there are a lot of businesses that have used remote work and telepresence as a means of being productive and saving money on overhead and a number of things. So I want to show you something here. This is actually something that I had pimped when I was lurking for work in in other companies, which was basically to kind of fight for a remote work option. And it's a company called Double Robotics. And there are a lot of telepresence robots out there, right? There are a lot of options now. Uh, But this was one that I found particularly interesting and was really interested in for something along the lines of like, I think it was a couple grand. You could have a a telepresence robot that would have a charging station that would have like an iPad that would show your face if you ever watched that I'm to remember the name of the, the television sitcom.
1: Oh, Big Bang Theory.
0: Thank you. There was one episode where he had exactly that. He had like a, a pad interface on a – basically on a stem that went down to some wheels. And he used like a hanger to put his shirt on it. Yeah. So that he would just – he would only have to – he would, wouldn't have to interact with any slimy, disgusting humans. This is pretty but, neat. But it is interesting. And, uh, and the fact that these sorts of options are available today, like if you did not want to go to work and you just wanted a robot to go in for you, you could set up a charging station. You could go and visit people at their desk and talk with them. It'd be a little awkward, mind you. Yeah, you know, a little bit of lag makes that difficult. But uh, anyhow, I, I found it to be kind of cool and, and doable today. Like you could put on a headset and and view and move around that world as if you were putting on the glasses and operating the robot in space. All right, so robot paranoia aside, uh, and telepresence aside, which I, I think that is pretty cool. He finishes his otherwise bland bland breakfast, it's subpar breakfast, not steak and eggs. I mean,
1: do you at least put some
0: sriracha on it? You know, These are questions I have. And his next step is to visit his therapist. And what I like here is that like he sets life goals, and then he kind of forces himself to do it. Even if he's not really into it, he at least commits. And I kind of dig that. And that's something that isn't new for this character. Like when he wanted to exercise, if he didn't exercise, he couldn't go into the Oasis. So he had to be of a certain weight, you know, in the the previous book. And in this situation, he's committed to therapy because H said, dude, you've you've got to relax. Because he was being an asshole. He was being a power-hungry, mongering asshole. And I guess this, this brings the point here. If you have the ability to go into the Oasis and zero out any character and you start doing that in a vigilante sort of way, whenever somebody says bad crap about you or bad crap about your friends, where, where do you, how do you feel about that?
1: I feel about him doing
0: that? Well, imagine if you did that or if somebody did that for you. I felt let down by Parzival. Read, re-
1: reading reading about him doing this i was
0: why, why let down because that just seems like
1: petty and not nothing at all like the character that you know that i think we really enjoyed reading about in the first book it just seemed like he he turned into the thing that he hated yeah he, he seemed very ioi like in this behavior it was just kind of disappointing, like there's actually quite a few things in this chapter that make me really disappointed in him. This whole idea was one of them
0: well and i and i I like this uh, because i'm disappointed, right because what we've got here is the character has and I, and I think you can see this in a number of stories for people who have like won the lottery. You hear this over and over again that winning the lottery doesn't make you happier what makes you happier could be purpose in life, could be just enjoying the love of your life. It could be, you know, raising a kid. Uh, You know, they're much more tangible, much more physical. But in his life, he really doesn't have a lot of that at all. You know, purpose is very disconnected. His real purpose is building a spaceship to leave humanity. That's his daily goal, I suppose. And other than that, other than that, moderating the Oasis and, quotes, managing GSS. But beyond that, I mean, it's there's not much depth to that purpose. So if he's going into social media and he's getting trounced, and I get it, like the minute you go from underdog to billionaire, you're going to get trounced. I feel like there are a lot of direct connections for a number of people that are very high on the spectrum of social media. You're going to fall under a level of of critical examination, and... I kind of wonder, and I don't mean to get like super meta and, and, and get into the psychology of that, but the writer is going to reflect what the writer knows in the writer's material. That is that is the expression of a book or even an expression of a movie. You'll write what you know. Mm-hmm. And Ernest Klein went from not having been super successful at writing to being very successful at writing and then having a certain degree of critique about the writing that he's done in the past, and and potentially some backlash, a number of people not liking the movie. If that's all you pay attention to, if you don't have the social maturity, as is as is mentioned in this chapter, what you're left with is paying more attention to the people who are, who have you know nothing better to do than to trounce your name, and spending no time paying attention to those who either need you or adore you. So have you actually disengaged in any of your social media from, I'm not going to ask you who, but have you disengaged anyone in social media to limit exposure to negativity?
1: Generally speaking, there are very limited activities that I actually do on social media. One is talk with other gunters. Right, right. Because that's happy. That's fun. It's it's talking about our favorite Things or shared interests that I do. Okay. I do not, under any circumstances, participate in anything political on social media. It is pointless. Nobody's convincing anybody of anything. No minds are being changed. It's useless. And I'm not going to contribute to anybody's echo chamber. Uh, I'm not going to go into someone's echo chamber and, you know, throw a monkey wrench in it. It is not, it's not worth my time. I don't need it. It's toxic. It It's an w- absolute waste of time.
0: Are there people that you have found whose posts who do obsess about, let's say, politics or something else, sports, religion, that you say, mm, no?
1: All the time, every day. I just, no, nope, ignore it. There's, there's not, I mean, frankly, there's not much to see anymore because that's all people talk about. It's right. all people care about. So I ignored those things and I would much rather like go to one of the variety of Gunterform type places, see what random eighties reference or nineties reference that they're talking about or a meme from them that I think is funny. Other than that, it's like, I,
0: I do the same thing as far as social media is concerned. If I feel like somebody isn't adding to my day and that's, that's how I look at it is, is I've used social media as it needs to be an ad if I want to immerse myself in certain subjects, let's say like politics, like religion, some of the controversial stuff, I will try and spread myself across a variety of information sources. And I will try to pepper in there sources that I know are not in alignment with what I believe. Because I, I don't want to make an echo chamber purely of what I enjoy and what I like and what I think is right. Because that just reinforces and amplifies a thought that might not be as big and might not be as strong as in reality versus what I'm having basically echoed back to me over and over and over again. And that's how the internet is. That's how Google is and Facebook and Instagram. Whenever you look for something, whenever you talk with somebody about something, whenever you search for something, whenever you spend a little bit of time looking at something on the page, when you stop scrolling, they know it. And they take that as a hint. They take that as an interest. Whenever you like something, whenever you comment on something, all of those have a powered calculation. They want to give you more of what you like because that makes the value for advertising that more powerful. And that means that you'll come back for more so that they can advertise to you. These systems like YouTube, like Google search, like Facebook, are designed to hook you and bring you in and pet you and stroke you and tell you what you want to hear. That is the echo chamber. I don't want that. If anything, I want to fuzz it, and I I want to search for weird things, and I, I want it to get confused. I don't want it to come into a pattern where it's telling me only what I want to hear. And even in saying that, I know that it's still happening, and I'm trying to be conscientious of that. But when it comes to people, though, yeah, I will absolutely unfollow anyone who is frequently posting negativity. And again, and that might sound hypocritical because that's still subtracting from the echo chamber, making what's in the echo chamber more specific or pure to the tone that I'm interested in. But the fact of the matter is, is that I don't need negativity in my daily life. I don't want people to, to you know toss up memes that are just ridiculous. I just I don't need to see garbage. It's a bit like exposing yourself to human mental viruses. You know, there is a certain degree of precaution that I'm going to take to not catch what somebody else has injected into their mind, and are trying to spread.
1: It's just sad with the state that we're in right now because nobody can really see more than like two feet in front of their face right now. People have zero sympathy, no empathy, and.
0: Oh, so you feel the same way as Parzival, which is humans weren't really intended to, to have this kind of exposure to other humans at this level of, of uh, technology.
1: It struck a chord with me because I feel like it makes it really easy for people to have that echo chamber. Whereas when you were just within a small group of people and you didn't really have a choice, you had to hear a variety of opinions and thoughts and perspectives now it's like it's so easy to just put yourself in a room with other people that agree with you that that's what people are doing, sure, and it's polarizing certainly the country, if not the world, and it's going to be bad
0: I think it's like logical fallacies. you have to train yourself to understand the manipulations at work you There literally is an education that needs to happen, and technology's moved so fast that society really hasn't implemented a, a healthy way of dealing with it. And I'm not even stating that I have a healthy habit in dealing with social media. But I'm trying, and I think part of that is being aware of the fact that, that there is an echo chamber effect, being aware of what social media and search systems and YouTubes, etc., are, are trying to feed you based on what you've specified, what you've watched, what you pay attention to. And, and to understand the effect that it has, and then to doubt yourself. And the problem with the echo chamber is you lose the ability to doubt yourself or, or doubt your convictions. And I think that's the dangerous part there. But as far as like human people are concerned, like it's, it's two-sided. You can either narrow to just the people you want to hear, and admittedly I do that to an extent— Or you can expand and try out other people. You can reach across and and connect with different cultures. And I think that was one of the points here where he was commenting on the the hypocrisy of using O&I by Samantha to try to communicate to people the kinds of suffering that humans are having. That it's not just a 50-person orgy where you can jump from body to body to experiencing that, but it's people who are starving and and being oppressed or being exploited and the experiences of that and that, that you know, he mentions that that's really powerful and popular, albeit hypocritical because Samantha was so you know, adamant about not using the technology. He got her on that one.
1: It does sound like a really powerful tool that would get a, her message across. But to use it at all, I mean, hypocritical barely scratches the surface. Right. But I get it. You can literally put on someone else's shoes and be in their place with the O and I, right? And it would create empathy and understanding. I mean, I don't know who's using an, an O and I net file to try to feel like what it's like to be hungry every day. I don't know who's doing that. I think more people are going for the fifty-person orgy.
0: Oh, sure. That's that's hands down. That's going to be at the top of of a lot of people's lists. I mean. It, Pornography, historically, has led the way in technology, has has pushed technology, even even diverted technology formats. The use of VHS over beta, that was decided by porn. The oh, use of, of, yeah, seriously, yes, they decided they were going to use VHS, adopt that as the format for porn, and there you go. That, that pretty much decided the technology. It, it, so that's it's not really surprising. But at the same time, though, situations wherein there is disruption, where there might be war, where there might be people suffering, that can be sold as sort of an exciting thing. But at the same time, it can really give you a perspective of somebody who has a really shitty life. And I see that as being, I can see that as being popular, but conveying the right message. So he's talking to his therapist.
1: Hold up. This conversation sounds like it's about to get deep. Time for a break. Be sure to subscribe to get to the good part on your favorite podcast platform so you can listen to part two of this episode as soon as it drops. See you then.
0: Cat lady that he would go and visit and have breakfast with. Oh,
1: this is. Uh...
0: Oh God, Doubtfire. No, what the hell's her name? Oh, we'll get back to it. Gilmore.